0: Because petroleum products volatilize, they vaporize into flammable gas at lower temperatures than wood does or wool or cotton does. When that thousand-degree heat came into the neighborhoods, out of the forest, these houses burst into flame in their entirety spontaneously.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, returning to my conversation with John Valiant, author of Fireweather, a true story from a hotter world. If you haven't yet listened to the first part of our conversation, you can stream it online at mtpr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. In May 2016, Fort McMurray, or Fort Mac, the hub of Canada's oil industry and America's biggest foreign supplier, was overrun by wildfire. The multi-billion dollar disaster melted vehicles, turned entire neighborhoods into firebombs, and drove 88,000 people from their homes in a single afternoon. In Fire Weather, a book of history, science, and storytelling, John Valiant warns readers that the fire at Fort Mac was not a unique event, but a shocking preview of what we must prepare for in a hotter, more flammable world. The second half of our conversation starts now.
0: Historic fires ...and broken temperature records. And so what we're seeing here is this trend as the world heats up and as Forest systems dry out. We see this trend toward more intense fire. So firefighters, wild firefighters and municipal firefighters who are trained, they've been trained on 20th century fires. And what they are finding in Redding, California, in Canberra, Australia, in Fort McMurray, uh, in Medford, Oregon, a couple of years ago, their firefighting skills, efforts, equipment are no longer effective against fires of this intensity. So instead, as one Cal Fire uh, media liaison told me, she said, after reading, she said, the firefighting effort became a life-saving effort. And so in other words, firefighters go in there prepared to engage with the fire, but you cannot engage with a fire tornado where the temperatures are 2,700 degrees and the wind is blowing 165 miles an hour and there's fire 1,700 feet high. So there's nothing you can do there. All you can do is try to get people out safely. And to their credit, there were, you know, I hate to say only, but there were only five fatalities uh, as a result of the Redding fire tornado. And think of what tor- tornadoes do to human beings and human communities just now in Tennessee. Uh, even without fire in them, they're already lethal. When you add fire, it adds this whole other layer of destruction and devastation. And so what's happening is our society and the people who are trained, paid, and depended on to protect our society are finding ourselves overmatched and kind of out of date. And the future has moved on, fire has moved on, and one reason i wrote this book is because the people in fort mcmurray, people in redding california, people in canberra australia whom i interviewed and and studied they have seen the future and they lived to tell us about it and we just saw you know nova scotia up here in canada burned terribly just 2 weeks ago and you know, if you think about Nova Scotia at all the way I do, I think about that's the land where fog comes from. So things are really changing fast, and and most people aren't ready for it.
1: You mentioned earlier that you began this book, this project, out of fear when the Fort McMurray fire started. Um, and the way that you talk about it with such urgency and the way that you write about it with such urgency and terror in the book, it sounds like there is still so much fear. And I'm wondering how that fear has changed for you, John. You know, it sounds like it's an informed fear now, which might be better than not. Um, but I'm wondering, just maybe more broadly than how you've changed in light of writing this book since covering the Fort Mac fire and writing Fire Weather.
0: My response to fear, you know, at, at least at my best, is to try to face it squarely, try to meet it where it's at, try to understand it. And so I really tried to understand fire. I really tried to understand how our climate has changed and is continuing to change. I tried to understand the dynamics that have set that in motion, you know, which is principally, you know, industrial combustion of fossil fuels. Um, And then I also spent time with people who are comfortable around fire, who have found ways to respond to it. And that's where you know these two fellows, Ryan Coots and his father Jamie Coots, from the smaller town of Slave Lake, Alberta, which mm-hmm. was burned over by fire in 2011, uh, five years before Fort McMurray. Those two men and their volunteer fire department have become very proactive in terms of how they approach 21st century wildfire. And I found it very reassuring to spend time with them. And these guys are absolutely committed to helping save lives, helping save property, helping inform anybody who wants to listen about what's out there and what many of us, you know, will probably be confronting in one form or another in our lifetimes. And so, in a way, the the Kootzes Inspired me to take a kind of proactive approach, and their fingerprints, you could say, are all over this book. And their their courage, their inspiration, they're really good communicators. They're charismatic guys, and you would absolutely want to have them by your side when one of these big fires comes to town. And so, in a way, in a, in a way that's different from my other nonfiction books, I, I thought of this book and think of it almost as a kind of public service announcement. You know, this is. This is an energy that is now abroad in our world, and it's blindsiding a lot of people. It's frightening a lot of people, but there are healthy responses to it. There are safe responses to it, and there are things we can do. And so that, um, that was helpful to me. It helps me sleep better at night, and uh, it made it a more, I think, a more hopeful book in a sense.
1: Yeah, you know, one of my questions was actually John whether you consider this book a call to action and it sounds like you do in a sense. And I'm wondering what you want your readers and our listeners here now to move forward with. You they they're given so much information in fire weather How would you want the average reader of fire weather to move forward in their own lives? Not a fire expert who's reading it or, uh, you know, a firefighter, someone who has on the ground experience with fires, but someone whose house might be in the line of fire or whose region is prone um, already to wildfires.
0: There's a, a place called the Wildland Urban Interface, also known as the WUI, and it's well-known to firefighters, and it's becoming increasingly well-known to citizens and residents because the wooi is where the forest meets the built environment. And it could be the edge of a suburb. Uh, it could be the edge of a rural community. It's where a lot of people, North Americans, want to live now. A lot of people want to live in a place where there's a forest out the back door with running trails and a cul-de-sac in front, you know, so you can ride your skateboard. And it's a really beautiful place to live, but it's more flammable now. And I really hope people will focus on that. And and I think what we're realizing, what forest hydrologists and, and wildfire specialists are realizing, is that the 20th century was actually an unusually damp one. And we're moving into a hotter, drier scenario in which the forests, that you know have always burned it's normal uh and so that that aspect hasn't changed but the quality of the fires in those forests has changed and the energy with which they come up to the edge of the wui is more ferocious in many places especially in the american and canadian west but now again we saw it in nova scotia gatlinburg tennessee of all places had a terrible fire Uh, In 2016, an urban fire. And so these are places we don't think of as being flammable, but they are. And so I think all of us need to kind of take stock of where we live and recognize the fact that it may not be as we imagined it when we were kids uh, or when we first moved there, maybe back in 1995 or, or 2000. So that's changed. And the other is we really need to know how we got here because knowing how we got here is how we're going to get out of it. And how we got here is by embracing liquid fossil fuels to the point that they drive our entire civilization. And so one of the, another term I coined besides 21st century fire is the petrocene age. And the petrocene age is when we really began that shift over from solid coal into liquid oil to, to petroleum. And that was 1860, 1870. Standard oil, you know, now Exxon Mobil, uh, was founded in 1870. Uh, the internal combustion engine had already been invented by then. Uh, automobiles were being prototyped. Um, so liquid, uh, petroleum fuel really changed our civilization in a way that it's never been changed before, allowing billions of people to command the the energy of emperors, to fly around, to drive around on a highway, to to move at speed with so much power and energy. We take it for granted, but it's all fire driven. And I think, you know, if I could leave readers with, with one thing is, You know, we think about it as energy. Energy is this really positive, wonderful characteristic, both in people and and in a society. Um, Most of our energy is derived from fossil fuels, which is to say from oil and gas, from petroleum. But I think really, when, when you get down to it, the energy is derived from fire. The only reason we're interested in coal or oil or bitumen, as they are in Alberta, or, or, natural gas is because it burns. And so we are a fire-driven civilization. And if you are going to embrace fire, it means you're going to generate massive emissions. And one thing the petroleum industry has done particularly well, particularly over the past 40 years, is to disassociate the very real benefits of a fire-powered society from the very real costs of a fire-powered society, which is increased CO2 and methane in the atmosphere, and global heating, which enables uh, fires to burn more intensely.
1: You're listening to A Conversation with John Valiant. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm glad you brought it back to the petroleum industry or this extraction industry, because in the book you write that the Fort Mac fire was a direct hit like Hurricane Katrina on New Orleans, on the epicenter of Canada's multi-billion-dollar petroleum industry, and we've been talking about the way that our our civilizations need to change, our societies need to change, or we need to adapt, or we need to different ways we need to look at our industry. And I've asked you how you changed in light of writing this book. I'm wondering if you've gone back to Fort Mac in the seven years that this fire happened. I'm wondering how that fire in 2016 changed Fort Mac and the extraction industry based there. Obviously, there was a lot of reconstruction um, and redevelopment that had to happen uh, there, but I'm wondering if the industry changed at all.
0: I wish I could say it did. Uh, How it changed is basically to double down on its modus operandi. So one would think that A fire that devastating, the most expensive natural disaster in Canadian history, the biggest evacuation due to fire uh, in one day anywhere on Earth, would cause would would generate some reflection. And in Alberta, there has not been reflection. Um, People were traumatized by that fire. Firefighters' health has been impacted by it. Um, Many people have PTSD to this day uh, who escaped that fire. But the industry itself is committed to extracting petroleum products and burning them as rapidly as possible. And the invasion of Ukraine uh, in 2021 and the spike in uh, petroleum prices that that drove only encouraged them. And so the Alberta government, which is very conservative, uh, is basically in a state of total climate denial. They will not discuss it. They are. Let me put this in perspective this year. More area has burned in Alberta by this date, we're in, you know, mid-June now, than any other year in recorded history. It's been a terrible fire year uh, for Alberta. It shows no signs of abating. And the leadership of the province of Alberta is suggesting that arsonists are starting these fires. Like, that's how extreme it is. This is total... Complete denial. It's cynical misinformation... And there's no question that some fires are started by arsonists, but it is not arsonists who are causing more area to burn than has ever burned uh, in the history of that province. What's causing more area to burn is it's drier and hotter than it's ever been. And that has been a trend that has been predicted even by petroleum companies' own scientists, the same petroleum companies who are based in Alberta. They know they knew. They still know. And Darren Woods, the the CEO of uh, Exxon, and Ben Van Burden, the CEO of Shell, acknowledge the impacts of industrial CO2 on climate, and they have literally said, we will not stop burning. We are going to continue to sell oil and gas. And they may pay a bit of lip service to carbon capture or uh, some green energy project or carbon offsets which have been debunked largely but bottom line and they'll they'll tell you themselves they are committed to burning oil for the foreseeable future and that is a really scary prospect so um how the fire changed me personally is i find i find it really galvanizing uh, i'm i'm ca- it, it, i'm galvanized to encourage people to stop burning fossil fuels uh, as rapidly as possible. I'm galvanized to change my own behavior as rapidly as possible. Um, And it's really made me think about all the implications of a fire-driven society. And what, what fire has done for us in the form of petroleum, it has amplified all of our Uh, capacity. And so not only can we fly faster, drive further, do more, um, consume more, but it also um, has altered the scale of our appetites and made us in a way more rapacious. And capitalism, uh, as it's practiced now, as we generally participate in it, is a fire-driven Mechanism. It's a fire-driven appetite. And I understand now that it is not sustainable. And it's imperative that we collectively moderate our appetites and re-examine our relationship to the earth, literally to the soil, to the things growing out of the soil, to the animals moving across that landscape. And a fossil fuel powered civilization, a fire powered civilization has encouraged us to separate ourselves from that natural system and to kind of move across it with a with a kind of a callousness and inattention that has done some measurable harm. And this is not how we always were, you know, petroleum. Is a relatively new development in human history. It's really only about six generations old. So we grew up in it. It feels normal to us, but it's really quite modern, you know, 1870 to the present. So if you go back before that, where most of human history has occurred, we lived much closer to the land, much more finely tuned to its rhythms, to its needs, to its sensitivities. And we need to reacquaint ourselves with our old selves, in that sense, and to reacquaint ourselves with this, the the systems that really, truly keep us alive. You know, it's not our automobile that keeps us alive. It's not our central heating that keeps us alive. It's really the land uh, from which those fuels are taken, uh, often in quite violent, disruptive ways, as it's done in Alberta. And um, it would behoove us uh, for our enjoyment of the future and for our survival uh, to reconnect and, and re-examine uh, that relationship.
1: Before you read a passage, John, you mentioned capitalism, and, and when we think about capitalism, we think about uh, goods and kind of this consumption of not only the land, but of the goods that come from it. And one of the things that I I learned but I guess it was kind of in the back of my head, like I kind of knew it, but you brought it out further in the book was this idea that, you know, not only are, is the climate changing, not only is the weather um, becoming uh, more inclement for wildfires, but the way that we manufacture goods has changed a great deal in the 21st century. So you said that petroleum has dominated our lives. Not only that, petroleum has, you know, it's in a lot of our goods now and the the ways that we furnish our houses. And that just makes house fires and wildfires all the more flammable. Fires burn differently because they're burning petroleum products.
0: That's a really good point. And it, that was really shocking to me in my in in the course of my research to discover how deeply entrenched petroleum is into every aspect of our lives. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you wear Nike sneakers or a Lululemon, you're wearing petroleum products on your body. And these are petroleum products. They will melt and they will burst into flame at certain temperatures in a way that cotton and wool will not. The modern mattress is completely fossil fuel, derivatives. Uh, The modern house, think of vinyl siding. Firefighters call that solidified gasoline. Think of a tar shingle roof. Think of all the glues and laminates and plywood and chipboard with which houses are now built. Think of all the laminates and varnishes that cover our floors. Think of, again, what our uh, furniture is upholstered with and stuffed with. Think of the toys our children play with. Um, all of that is petroleum-based. And what we saw in the Fort McMurray fire, because petroleum products volatilize, they vaporize into flammable gas at lower temperatures than wood does or wool or cotton does. When that thousand-degree heat came into the neighborhoods, out of the forest, these houses burst into flame in their entirety spontaneously. And so these 50-ton two-story structures exploded into flame and burnt into the basement in five minutes. And it's almost impossible to imagine that being physically possible. And when firefighters were first telling me this, I was rightfully skeptical. And only when I understood the chemistry and the physics that were uh, in play that I came to believe and understand how it works. And that's what happens. And so, you know, think of you've got a a, say a wax covered milk carton. Imagine throwing that into a bonfire. You know, it will burst into flame instantly and disappear. And think of putting a plastic bag into a into a fire. It will disappear almost instantly. It volatilizes almost instantly. That is what is happening in the modern house. And it's really shocking to think that's where we live. That's where we raise our children. And you know, not to mention all the toxins off-gassing from all those substances. And um, we have lost sight of that. It's become so ubiquitous, so so general around us, that we have literally lost sight of it. But in fact, it's everywhere. Mm
1: -hmm. John, how about we, uh, before we sign off today, how about uh, giving us a taste of fire weather? Will you read an excerpt?
0: Sure. Uh, So the fire has just come into... um, one of the west side neighborhoods it's already burned through the neighborhood of beacon hill it's now coming into another neighborhood called abysand uh by now everybody is evacuating and one man decided not to and he was uh, a welder and machinist with suncor which is one of the biggest bitumen mining and processing companies in fort mcmurray and he decided to stay and fight for his property and he had You know, a jet boat and five snowmobiles and trucks and cars. And he was a, you know, a real motorhead, self described, and uh, a a beloved motorcycle. And he was not going to let them burn. So uh, he's fighting this fire the best he can. And um, he sees the other houses around him igniting. And I'm going to sort of jump in at this moment. His name is Wayne McGraw. It's around this time that McGraw realizing perhaps that he was fighting a losing battle, paused and pulled out his phone. So, folks, here's the video, he began. I tried. I tried. Pretty sad. This is what's all around me. The phone, topsy-turvy now, panned around his property. Everything right up to his white picket fence was either on fire or burned black. Through his aggressive intervention, McGraw's property had become a historical artifact, a relic of domestic order and green grass surrounded by the future, an entire neighborhood burning to the ground. In the background, blue flashes could be seen amid the orange flames as breaker boxes and transformers exploded. It's all around he continued over the ferocious crackle and shatter of burning houses. Not sure how much longer I can keep it up, but those that know me know I'll do my best, so here goes. But I don't like seeing what's down there. Anyway, I'm out. Love you all. It is the final transmission of a resolute captain fighting to save his doomed ship after everyone else has abandoned it. There, sweating in his Nomex and armed with a garden hose and sprinklers, his blood buzzing with adrenaline and alcohol, McGraw braced himself for for what was coming. By this time, he told me, pointing to another neighbor's house on the map, this house was on fire. I get up on my shed and I'm watering trees and then the propane tank blew in my neighbor's barbecue. It almost knocked me off the shed. If I didn't have on them coveralls, I'm not sure I would have lived. I got burned pretty good. I was all red in the years, lost my eyebrows, knuckles are burned. So I had to douse myself, and the flames are coming. Prep my trees and my fence. Took about five, six minutes per house to collapse. Yeah, that's true. The wind's going this way, northward. And the fire kept going down here, northward, on the opposite side of the street. Down, 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 about five houses and I'm thinking, I'm saving my corner. Then, he said, it crossed. McGraw pointed again to his hasty diagram, and the way his finger traced the fire's progression down the street, its sudden pause, followed by its astonishing shift in direction, was chilling. It recalled the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park, peering at her prey through the window of that kitchen door, suddenly realizing there was another way in. I'm up on my roof with the sprinkler system, he said, and I look down and it starts coming back up the street.
1: John, thank you so much for joining me today and thank you for Fireweather. I so uh, enjoyed and was really moved by it.
0: Thanks so much. Same to you.
1: That was John Valiant, author of Fireweather, a true story from a hotter world. Out now from Alfred A. Knopf. Look for more information about John or listen to the first part of this conversation at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode, and MTPR intern Nani Hamilton helped edit this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.